This is my first time to speak publicly uh, since I've been hired as the new associate pastor. And uh, I just want to say before I teach this morning that it really is a blessing uh, for us to be here, for my family and I to be here. And we're, we are grateful. This is an answer to prayer. Uh, we prayed for this to happen, and the Lord has been good to us. And we also, I also want to thank you on behalf of my wife as well. You guys have just given us such a warm welcome, and we feel loved and cared for. Uh, and you guys, that's a, a definite strength of this body. And so we're, we're grateful for you, grateful for your welcoming of us and our children. And uh, again, we just thank the Lord for that. So what I want to do this morning um, is give you an introduction to this three-part series that we'll go through over the next three Sundays together. Uh, but while I do that, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. So the title of this series is Praying for One Another, Lessons from the Apostle Paul. So Praying for One Another, Lessons from the Apostle Paul. That's the big um, kind of overarching theme of the series that we're going to walk through together uh, over the next three Sundays. So what I hope to do over the next few weeks is investigate the way in which Paul prayed for others. Uh, so that by God's grace, you and I can implement Paul's practice into our lives in a sort of uh, 1 Corinthians 11.1 kind of way. Imitate me, Paul says, as I imitate Christ. Uh, there is a lot in Paul's prayer life that is worthy to be emulated. All right, we know that for sure. Uh, but there's a specific dynamic here that I want us to look at as uh, the dynamic of praying for each other. So now when we look at Paul's prayers, we find that he devoted a substantial uh, proportion of his letters, 13 letters, to praying for other people. He was truly others-oriented. If you think of Paul's life, if there ever was someone who lived a life that was oriented towards other people, it was Paul. I think of a few lines um, from his letter, 2 Corinthians twelve fifteen. He writes, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. It's an others-centered statement. I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Also, 2 Corinthians five fifteen. Jesus died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Right, that's a, definitely an other-centered statement. I'm putting my phone up here with a clock because I heard that clock's a little off. And it is. Um, according to Apple standard time. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.15 Christ died for us um, so that we would no longer live our lives oriented uh, towards ourselves. Right? That's our sinful default. So just live our lives thinking only about ourselves. And Paul didn't live that way. Paul had learned, Mark 10, 45, right? he had learned from Jesus that Jesus' pattern in coming into the world was 
not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus, obviously, was others-oriented. Jesus imitating Paul, or Paul imitating Jesus, was others-oriented. And what that did for Paul was it led him uh, to living a life, at least in his prayer life, of praying for other people. Jesus, we know explicitly, called his followers to love others, to love one another, as I have loved you. And Paul clearly obeyed this command, and he loved others deeply, and therefore he thought of them often and prayed for them often. That's kind of a prerequisite for praying for other people, as you think about them. You're not going to pray for someone that you don't think about. Um, But Paul thought of these people often, when we look at his letters, just as a survey of his letters, he thought of others often, he, he talks about how he, he felt anxiety in a healthy way of some sort, he felt a burden for the health of the churches around him, it was on his mind, because he loved these people and he was concerned with their spiritual well-being. So, all that to say, when it comes to analyzing Paul's letters and how he prayed for others, there is a wealth of data that we could look at um, to kind of latch on to and try to imitate, but we definitely won't be able to cover all of that over this three-part series. But what I want to do is look at some of the more uh, unique elements uh, that we find in Paul's prayer life, specifically for others, that we might just overlook or not think about. And, and specifically, there are a few letters of the Apostle Paul that don't get a lot of attention, uh, and that's 2 Thessalonians is definitely one of those letters. So, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1 is where we'll be today. And what we're going to be looking at specifically is Paul's gratitude for others. The gratitude that he had for really the grace in the lives of other people. He observed it and he, he felt, we'll see, an obligation to God to thank God for the work that he was doing in other people. And hopefully we'll be able to emulate that model. This is an especially interesting feature of Paul. He's overwhelmingly thankful for the people that he writes letters to. This is characteristic Pauline writing. If you open to any letter, almost any one of Paul's letters, it begins with what? A thanksgiving. It's a thanksgiving because Paul was grateful. Grateful for the work of God demonstrated in the lives of the people around him. We could really uh, go to multiple texts to see this, but for time's sake we'll jump over these examples. And we're just going ri- to get right into our text in 2 Thessalonians 1. So turn with me there if you haven't, uh, 2 Thessalonians 1. And we're going to read the whole chapter. Because Lord willing, next week we'll come back and round out the chapter uh, before we go to a, a new book. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is our text. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another 
is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you when you are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. And when He comes on that day, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this rich text. We thank You for Your Word in general, that has come to us through centuries of faithful men, faithful women, and their stories retold and kept in this book. And we confess and believe that it is the unfolding of this book, your word, that gives light. And we pray, Lord, as we look at this text uh, this morning together, that your spirit would be at work in us to help us to understand the truth we see in these two verses And Lord, that by your grace, we would implement what we see uh, in the Apostle Paul. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So our focus is really on verses 3 and 4. Let's give a little bit of a background to the church in Thessalonica. It was a young church started by Paul on his second missionary journey. And you'll remember that Paul faced severe persecution when he arrived in Thessalonica. And just to give you a refresh on that, and since we have the ability in a Sunday school lesson, let's flip back to Acts 17, because I think this really frames, it it really does frame the context of uh, the two Thessalonian epistles. It's important. Acts 17 Verse 1, this is Paul and Silas. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So Paul's custom was to go to a new city and go straight to the synagogue and to preach 
the mystery of Christ, to preach that Christ, or Jesus, was actually the Messiah. And we find in verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. So there were a group of Jews, when Paul goes into the synagogue, they're convinced. Paul convinced them the Spirit of God was at work in them, and they heard and they believed. And Paul did this for three consecutive Sabbath days. And so some of these Jews believed, and then verse 4, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. There's a a, a few people who believe. But the Jews, verse 5, were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. So let's think about a city, Thessalonica. Uh, These folks set the city in an uproar. So you think about a riot. Now my mind goes to L.A. riots. So this is is an uproar. A city... um, in an uproar, and we'll see that the imagery that the folks use is that the cities were being turned upside down. Right? Well, verse 5, we'll keep on. So, the Jews were jealous. They go to some of the wicked men, and they form a mob and th- set the city in an uproar. They attack the house of Jason, a believer, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, They let them go. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. You got to get out of here, Paul and Silas, or you're going to be killed. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. This is their practice. And now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So this is a good reception. Look at the next verse. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there to, to agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Well, that was the beginning of the church in Thessalonia. Gospel came. Faith came. Riots came. It overturned city. Paul has to flee, Paul and Silas. And the um, persistent Thessalonians who are opposed to Paul came after Paul and Silas in Berea. And eventually, Paul and Silas have to flee from Berea as well. They go to Athens, and then they finally make their way to Corinth, where Paul spends 18 months. And it was during Paul's time in Corinth that he received an update on this new church in Thessalonica. So imagine, you come, you preach, people believe the gospel, and then everyone in the city 
comes after this little band of believers. And you have to leave. And you're gone for months, and you're wondering, what happened to these precious people? Who knows what happened? I mean, if they came after me in Berea, what are they doing to the people that are in their own city? Well, Paul received a report from them, probably from Timothy, um, and it was a good report. And so in return, Paul wrote First and Second Thessalonians uh, to this small band of believers who had, were undergoing immense persecution and, and shame and separation from their families, all sorts of uh, difficulty. And likely these two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, were written within months of one another. All right, so this is back to back. So much so that the situation was the same in both uh, when Paul wrote both letters that some people you know, argue that, well, actually, 2 Thessalonians was first, and 1 Thessalonians is second. It doesn't really matter, ultimately, um, because what we see in 1 and 2 Thessalonians is so similar um, that it doesn't ultimately matter which came first. But anyway, I think 1 Thessalonians came first, for the record. Well, so we've seen something of the environment that this church was birthed in, High persecution, social shaming, family opposition. It's important when we think about Jewish people who believe the gospel. It wasn't just that they believed and then you know, they had difficult relationships with their families. They believed and they were cut off from the synagogues. So where weddings happened, where special events happened, uh, they were cut off from that. Um, and they were shamed. So the birth of this church happened in that atmosphere. Its leadership was pursued and publicly ashamed. It was a difficult situation. This is the beginning of this church. Now, what we see in these two letters of First and Second Thessalonians is that Paul was extremely grateful that these people not only believed initially, but that almost defying all probability, they kept the faith. In the face of all the difficulties that they were facing as believers, they kept believing. This is remarkable. And Paul's gratitude was just enormous. And we see this in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 1, in verse 2, Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And here's why. Verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Uh, Let's jump down um, to verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And then notice this. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And later on in, in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul describes, uses two metaphors to describe like his feelings and care for these people. It's a father with his children, and a mother 
with her children. This is the kind of love and care that Paul had for these dear people in Thessalonica. So the word of God had come, they believed, repented. And every time, and this is kind of where I want us to focus in this morning, every time that Paul recollected this event of these people believing the gospel, it caused him to be filled with gratitude to God. He was grateful to God for what God had done in their circumstances. Now, with that larger context in mind, let's, let's zero in on our text. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3. Paul writes, we ought always, all right, we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers, as is right. Well, why is it right, Paul? Well, think about what we just talked about, right? I mean, this is a miracle, right? Maybe more accurately, this is a supernatural work of God that these people were believing the gospel. Now, that's true today, <laughs> Anytime someone believes the gospel, supernatural work of God, right? Well, Paul's a little more specific, though. He goes on. We ought to give thanks to God always for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, We ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. I want us to zero in first on this phrase, we ought always to give thanks to God. Notice that Paul's not just saying, we're thankful for you Thessalonians. He could have easily said that, but he doesn't. He he words it in a curious way. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Now, I think he's doing something here uh, that we want to notice. He's not just saying thank you. He's he's modeling for the Thessalonians how they ought to pray, I think. Let's think about the word thanks for just a minute. Thanks can simply be defined as gladness directed towards someone for a perceived benefit. Gladness directed towards someone for a perceived benefit. This is Thanksgiving. Right? Someone does something kind for you, you um, perceive that they've done it, and you go to them and you give thanks. Thank you for what you've done. Now when that is directed towards God, it, the implication there is that we are mindful of what God has done and we're grateful for it, we're glad for it, and we direct that gratitude to God. This is basic. I'm not trying to blow your socks off here. But here's the thing. So one of the dangers that we have in Christianity is that we can use words and they can become kind of like a hollow shell. And there's no substance to the word. So it's helpful, I think, for me to think about basic words and have working definitions of those words. So thanksgiving, gratitude, this is gladness directed towards God for what he's done. Right? Now, we're commanded to give thanks to God always for everything. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Ephesians 5.20. Gratitude is a non-negotiable. It's a non-negotiable. When we consider the benevolence of God, Specifically, the kindness of God to us in Christ. 
We ought to be grateful people. I mean, you think about Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. That's good things that he's done to you, for which you ought to be grateful. We ought to be grateful people. And there, there is, and I keep emphasizing this word ought, because there is an oughtness in thanksgiving. There's an oughtness there. Paul says we ought always to give thanks to God. The word ought is actually the main verb in the sentence. It doesn't seem like it in English, but it actually is the main verb in these two verses. Paul is emphasizing the oughtness here. He's stressing the obligation that he feels to God to return thanks for the lives of the Thessalonians, for what they're doing. The King James Version actually translates to this verse this way. We are bound to thank God always for you. We're bound to it. We could appropriately translate it. We are under obligation to thank God for you. Obligation is not a word we use a lot anymore. We don't like it. We don't want to obey out of duty. Well, you can't get around obligation and you can't get around duty in the Bible. I mean, we love the Lord. We love Jesus and we want to be motivated out of love to God. So I'm not saying that love is not our ultimate goal for motivation. But there is a sense in which there's obligation and duty. And this is what Paul is stressing here. We ought, there's an obligation on us to be thankful, specifically when we see God's work in the lives of others. And that's the point here. We ask, why is Paul under this obligation? Well, he's under an obligation because Paul had seen the evidence of God's work in the lives of the Thessalonians. He had seen it. And once he saw it and perceived what was happening and recognized it, he understood the source of this fruit in the lives of these dear people. And immediately, Paul says, I'm obligated to thank God. I'm going to the source here to thank God for the work that he's doing in your lives. This is clear, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. Flip over there to me, first, with me. 1 Thessalonians 1. I want you to see that Paul's model is to go to the source here. When he sees fruit in someone's life, he goes to the source. Verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. We've talked about that. But notice, with the joy of whom? The Holy Spirit. What was the source of their reception of the word with joy? What, what was the source there? It's the Holy Spirit at work in them. So Paul's gratitude stemmed from his realization that any time we see joy, love in the lives of another, perseverance, We ought to thank God for it because He is the source. So this is the principle, and this really is the point of my whole Sunday school lesson. Whenever we see evidence of God's grace in the lives of others, we are obligated to thank God 
for producing that fruit in their lives. Whenever we see the evidence of God's grace in the lives of others, we are obligated to thank God for producing that fruit in their lives. Let me put it another way. Christians must be grateful for the work of God demonstrated in the lives of those around us. We have to be. Gratitude is a non-negotiable with us. It's not just gratitude for God's kindness to our family or his, his patience with us or our, you know, some personal benefit. But remember, we want to be thinking others-oriented. We definitely want to be grateful for the personal benefits that God has given us. If we think about Paul, who's others-oriented. And when we think about others with a mind, uh, an attitude of gratitude, we're going to see the fruit of God in the lives of these people. And when we see that, we have an obligation. Obligation to be thankful. So, we need to be people, then, who are on the lookout for signs of God's grace all around us. We need to be people who are on the lookout for signs of God's grace all around us. Now, let's not get weird. I'm not talking about, you know, going and overturning rocks or sitting in the park and just, you know, kind of, you know, looking at trees and thinking about God's grace. No, we're talking about grace in the lives of people, right? Grace in the lives of people. Evidences, signs of God's grace in the lives of one another. We ought to be people and we have to be people who are actually on the lookout for these things. You just think about your life. Uh, would, could you be characterized as a person who's on the lookout for God's grace being evidenced in the lives of other people? We tend uh, not to be characterized by that sort of uh, trait. What are the signs of grace that we can be on the lookout for? Generally, you can use the fruit of the Spirit as a guide, as a rubric. Galatians 5, 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Anytime we see those at work, see, anytime we see a brother or a sister bear with someone who is hard to bear with, right? That's an evidence of, the, of God at work in the lives of that person. And once you see it, and this is my argument, and this is what I want us to be thinking like, once you see it, you now are under obligation to God, to give God thanks. So uh, through seminary, I worked retail, uh, which is, you know, if you kind of have to be a special person to work retail. I'm not. I'm not that kind of guy. I'm glad to be out of retail. But, you know, the Lord was kind to me, and I had a great experience, and I loved the place I worked. They were great people. Um, but we, we were, what you're always dealing with is how do you get people uh, to do what they're supposed to be doing, right? How do you do that? And that's with anything, right? How do you get the people that you've hired to do the work they need to do? Because everyone kind of wants to get something for nothing. It's kind of sinful human nature. So we, we came up with various ideas, and we were always brainstorming about what we could do. Well, one of the big things we talked about was initiative, initiative. And so we, we would train people, like if you're walking through the store 
and you see the piece of paper on the ground, that becomes yours. You are, you are now responsible for that. So what we're trying to do is train their conscience, to make them feel guilty when they saw it and they didn't do it, to feel bad so they would actually take care of business. We called that initiative, improving the situation. Right. So you see it, go take care of it. Well, similarly, when you see grace in someone's life, it would be a great thing for us to have our consciences trained, right? To think, oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for, for giving them the grace to bear under this trial. Um, so that's what I hope, hope we can do this morning. Well, um, you can use, like I said, this, the fruit of the Spirit as a, as a rubric there, and it's helpful. So I hope you would do that. But Paul actually gives three things specifically that he was grateful for in the lives of the Thessalonians. And that's what I want us to look at in the time that we have left. Three things. Um, when we see these three things, we, we have an obligation to turn to God and thank Him for His work. Right? First, we ought to thank God when we see growing faith. We ought to thank God when we see increased love for others, when we see that happen. And we ought to thank God when we see steadfastness under trial. So when you look around and you think about the people in our church, you think, okay, I can see their faith is growing. I can see they have an increased love for others. And I can see that by God's grace, they continue to bear under this really heavy trial. We, we are obliged, when we see that, to turn and give God thanks. Now, Paul doesn't tell us to do this in this passage, but what he does model for us is actually not just saying, God, thank you for what you've done, but actually going to the person and saying, hey, I thank God that he's helped you to bear under this trial. That, that's what he's doing. Can you imagine how encouraging it was for these Thessalonians who were undergoing all sorts of difficulty to hear Paul say, brothers, I thank God when I see your growing faith. And they're probably sitting there thinking like, Paul, we, we are struggling. You know, we're often blind to our own, uh, mature, or our own pr- uh, progression. We're often blind to that, just like we're often blind to our sins. Right? We often feel like, man, I'm just crawling barely crawling here. And we feel that because we know ourselves uh, well. Our wives are usually aware of our inadequacies too. Um, but we feel that way, right? And I think we could all identify with that. Man, just how encouraging it is when you feel like you're crawling and barely moving for a brother or sister to come up to you and say, I thank God for your progress in faith. You are really growing. It is evident. That's wind in the sails, right? So that's just an aside here. And Paul doesn't tell us to do that. He's just modeling it for us. So first, we ought to thank God when we see growing faith. That the Thessalonians believed the gospel was incredible. (laughs) Initially, it was incredible. That anyone ever believes the gospel is incredible. Um, But they did believe and they repented. And not only that, Paul had received a report that their faith was actually growing. And what is more, in a very short period of time, Paul says their faith was growing abundantly. 
You see that in verse 3. Because your faith is growing abundantly. We thank God because your faith is growing abundantly. Uh, in Greek, that word there, growing abundantly, is, or those, those two words, is actually one word. And it's the only, this is its only occurrence in the New Testament. It's a pretty impressive word. And it means to grow beyond measure or grow beyond or grow to the limit. This is the only place it's used this way. Grow to the limit. So Paul looks at these people and he says, We thank God because your faith has grown to the limit. Man, I'm struggling to believe the gospel today, Paul. But Paul looks at them and says, Your faith, I can see. And the report is that your faith is growing abundantly. It's grown to the limit. Well, how, how does someone's faith grow to this degree? It's a kind of an, a strange way to think about faith. If it's, you know, you've reached max capacity, that's kind of a strange way to think about faith. Well, what does he mean? Well, flip over to Romans 4. Romans 4 is a helpful cross-reference. Um, and I'm going to read it before you get there for the sake of time. Romans 4, uh, Paul is describing Abraham as the model of faith. The model of Christian faith. New Testament faith. In hope, verse 18... He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. Okay, think about this. Abraham had been told by God, you will be the father of many nations. Okay, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Notice verse 19. He did not weaken in faith. When he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Think about this verse. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Verse 21 fully convinced that God was able to do what He had promised. I would say a full measure of faith is being fully convinced that God is able to do what He has promised. It's not that Abraham didn't believe when he left Ur. Surely he believed when he left Ur. But we can see from Genesis 12, really up, I guess, through 25, we see Abraham's faith growing and maturing until he finally comes to Genesis 22 to Mount Moriah. And God says, okay, here's the son that I promised you. Now go sacrifice him. And what does Abraham do? He takes his son and he takes the wood and they go up the mountain and he looks at the people at the base of the mountain and he says, okay, my son and I are going to go up to worship. And do you remember what he says after that? And we will return. Either, I think, he has to be meaning God's going to provide a sacrifice and we're going to come back. Or I'm going to sacrifice him and I'm going to carry him down, my, down the mountain dead. We're going to come back. 
Right? If, that's what it kind of seems like. But when we fast forward to Hebrews 11.9, we get a divine commentary on what was going on in Abraham's mind. And we learn that actually Abraham, when he says, we're going to go up the mountain and come back, what he was meaning was, I'm going to go kill my son and God's going to raise him from the dead. And we're going to come back down the mountain. It's Hebrews 11.9. Uh, Abraham considered that God was able to raise him even from the dead. Because all of his promises were bound up in this one person. That is fully convinced that God is able to do what he says. That's kind of the faith that we want to have. Faith is is simply believing God. Or put it negatively, faith is simply refusing to call God a liar. When you don't believe God, what are you doing? You're calling God a liar, whether you want to say it that explicitly or not. I remember one time I had preached a sermon, and at the end of the sermon, there was this, it was, I was traveling, and there was a sweet lady at the front of the um, chapel, and after I'd preached, I could tell that she was, something was going on with her. And we, I came down and talked with her, and um, she was struggling. She, was, she said that she was a believer, but she was struggling for assurance of salvation. And so, so I asked her a few questions, and I could see that you know, she knew all the facts, but there was some disconnect between her and comprehending that, that God had done this work for her. The gospel was for her. And so we turned to John 3.16, and she read it, and I said, okay, now what's your issue? And I said, what does the text say? God so loved the world, okay, that He gave His only Son in order that whoever should believe in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe that, Sue? She says, yes, I believe that. I said, okay, what's your issue? Uh, What's the problem? Do you believe that Jesus died for sinners like you? Yes, I believe it, but... You know, she would talk about how difficult her life was and things she had done in the past. And so we tried to address those issues. Um, but the text was right in front of her. Jesus died, God gave his son for you, a sinner. Are you a sinner? Yes, I'm a sinner. Do you believe that Jesus died for sinners? Yes, I believe that. Okay. It's as simple as believe on the Lord. But she couldn't get over that. It was just some issue. Either it was weak faith or no faith. I don't know. Um, but she was not fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is, give eternal life to poor sinners like us who believe on Jesus. Right? Well, these Thessalonians had got there. <laughs> they were convinced that God would do what he would, had promised. So, whenever we see growing faith, someone becoming convinced that God is able to do what he says he will do, we need to thank God. Because growing faith and faith is a gift from God, Ephesians 2, right? So we are obligated to thank God. Now on the flip side, if we see someone like Sue who was not believing the gospel, we don't just try to pound her with logic and reason. We, we try to argue with her and persuade her. Paul, we persuade all men, be reconciled to God. But ultimately, we recognize faith is a gift from God. God, give them faith. Help her to believe. And a good prayer, uh, just for one another, would be, God, would you convince us 
more and more that you will do all that you have promised. God, will you convince us more and more that you will, in fact, do all that you've promised? Romans 4.22. All right. So, we think, when we see growing faith, we thank God, um, because faith is the fruit of God's work. Secondly, we ought to thank God when we see increased love for one another. When the Thessalonians believed the gospel, they demonstrated it immediately. There was no question. Are they really believers? We don't know what's going on. I don't, I'm not sure. No, they bore fruit immediately. And the most prominent fruit they bore was love. In Paul's first letter, he, he said to the Thessalonians, uh, just listen to this. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, 9-10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. And notice, for, here's the reason. Because you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. The source of the Thessalonians' love for one another was not their willpower or grit, but it was the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And Paul knew that, and so he gave thanks to God for it. Just a basic definition of love. Love is warm regard for another. Warm regard or interest in another person. We know from 1 Corinthians 13 what love looks like. And so when we think about that, love is patient, kind. When we think about that demonstrated in this church in Thessalonica, we can kind of get a sweet image of these people, right? And that's true. It was a sweet fellowship. But what we have to realize when, we come, when it comes to this kind of thing is that in Thessalonica, there were two types of people who had believed the gospel. Do you remember who they were? First, it was Jews in the synagogue, and then it was who? Now, did that mix well? (laughs) No, right? And we know the reason why. Lots of different people with lots of different preferences from different cultures. It's difficult. On top of that, you've got persecution from without. The heat's turned up. This is hard. However, These people, despite all odds, were abounding, the text says, in love for one another. It's incredible. They were abounding in love for one another. Now, if we think about man's fallen characteristics, the works of the flesh, our, our default sin nature when we come together is to bite and devour one another to envy one another, to be angry, to quarrel, to take offense to every word that someone says. Man, if you just think about the opportunities that exist in a group this size for one another to be offended at one another, it's remarkable. Now, go back in time to Jews and Gentiles together. (laughs) I mean, these these were people that were offended left and right. It was a difficult scenario. But what happened is the Thessalonians 
we're actually growing in love. And what do we know about love? What does love do? It covers what? Right. Man, love can cover sin. It can deal with your, you know, whatever annoying tick or whatever silly thing that someone says to you. I always think, I had a conversation this morning with someone about this. I always think about the command to bear with one another. Right? Now, we read that and we think, oh yeah, I have to bear with Sally and John. and you know, Okay, I'm coming to church and I'm bearing with these people. But we forget that you have to be born with yourself. Right? Sally and John have to bear with you. Right? We bear with one another. Well, once your attitude and your mindset towards others is love, how can I love others? You know, it changes that. You, know, you start loving people and you start thinking about how I can serve and care for them rather than how dare they say that to me or how dare they not say anything to me. Don't they know that I'm in this situation? Well, there's a lot to be said about that, but the sinful nature that we have is to bite and devour. And whenever we see the opposite, love and care and kindness and patience with one another, friends, we are obligated to thank God for it. Right? We see that work in someone's life and we go to God and say, God, thank you for this work that you're doing in their lives. All right. Thirdly, we ought to thank God whenever we see someone's perseverance under trial. So you look at the text with me. He says, verse, he says, and, and we, we give thanks to God as is right because your faith is growing. The love of every one of you for another is increasing. The idea there is actually abounding, but it's just abounding. It's multiplied. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, real quick. Paul gives us two categories of trial here. One of them uh, is persecutions, as in a programmatic, systematic uh, mode of persecuting people. You harass them. Um, This is the kind of persecution we often think about when we think of early first century Roman persecution of the church. Systematic, programmatic, we are harassing uh, and persecuting these people. That's the first. That is persecutions. And then the other word he uses is affliction. In English, the ESV, that word is the word flipsis, which is a common word for pressure and trial and difficulty. So we've got persecution, and then we've got the standard pressures of life. And somehow, these dear people in Thessalonia are abounding in love, um, their faith is increasing, and they're bearing under this trial. How? How in the world are these people still following Jesus at the end of this trial? Well, because God has upheld them, right? And so Paul thanks God for that. Now, real quick, let me summarize here. Not summarize, let me conclude. I want us to apply this. So you've seen, you've got the three reasons or opportunities we have where we are obligated to thank God. I want to ask a question. What might keep us from thanking God when we see His work in the lives of other people? What is it that would inhibit us or, or keep us from giving God thanks when we see the fruit of the Spirit in the life of someone else. Or maybe two general categories. First, uh, you just don't see it. Right? You just don't see it. Um, you have a lack of awareness. Maybe that's where you are. Well, let me ask you a question. 
Or you should ask yourself this question. Why am I so unaware of the people around me? Is that an expression of love? Probably not. Second, a self-focus. I don't see the fruit of the Spirit in others around me because I'm only thinking about myself. Um, The remedy for that is Galatians 5, 13 to 14. Love, serve other people. So that's the first one. What about the second one? I see it, but I just don't give thanks to God for it. I haven't been giving God thanks for it. Why would you not do that? Well, maybe it's because you function as a practical atheist, right? You're a believer, but you live your life day to day without any regard to God. You're not aware of God in your life. Jerry Bridges, I think, that's his definition of ungodliness. You just live your life, and you, you, know, you, you look up, and it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you're on your second break or whatever, and you think, I have not even thought about God today. Right? So you're not going to give God thanks for the fruit of the Spirit in other people's lives if you're not thinking about God throughout the day. Right? Second, you see, you see fruit of the Spirit in someone's life, but you don't give thanks because maybe you're envious or jealous. Right? James 3 but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition will keep you from, from having the proper gratitude for what God is doing in your own life. And then lastly, maybe just callousness. Maybe you're just callous. I pray God help us, help us to see the fruit of the Spirit in one another's lives. Let me pray for us. Father, um, help us. Help us to implement this practice of praying for one another and being grateful for your work. We know, Lord, you are at work. It is it's evident. We think of people right now who are undergoing severe trials in this church. Uh, and, we, Lord, we're reminded um, that you are the one who upholds your people. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you for working love and faith in each one of us. And we pray, Father, that we would each Lord, be resolved to live um, with an awareness, to be on the lookout for signs, evidences of your grace in the lives of others. Amen.